Welcome to Summit Podcasts. This is Michael Bond. Today I'm speaking with Pastor Todd Stanley. Todd is the associate pastor at our Indiana location. In this episode, we are discussing part three of the sermon series titled The Gospel According To. This series is designed to compare the true gospel with other archetypal ideas set down in the culture. This particular message is in reference to the patterns of belief depicted in the Harry Potter stories. I feel like Harry Potter needs no introduction, but if somehow you haven't heard of it, it is fantasy literature about wizards written by J.K. Rowling. The Harry Potter stories are perhaps the most globally popular literature of the 21st century. We want these sermon discussions to function much like the drive home from church. Imagine you just heard the message and you're talking it over with your friends and family. That unpacking process is what we hope to achieve here. In this conversation, we talk about the differences between acceptance and agreement. Among other things, we discuss death and whether or not immortality in this life is even desirable. We also talk about the perspective shift, which occurs after conversion, and the effects this shift has on pain. Anyway, I found this discussion profitable and an excellent accompaniment to the sermon itself. If you missed part three of The Gospel According To then I encourage you to watch it on demand at summitpa.church. As always, the audio from this sermon is available right here on summitpodcasts.church. Anyway, I'm so thankful to have you here today. So without further delay, I bring you Pastor Todd Stanley. I am here with Pastor Todd Stanley. Hey, hey. All right, so we are getting into the gospel according to, this is week three, this is the gospel according to Harry Potter. And so in this podcast, I think we're going to talk a little bit about the differences between acceptance and agreement. We'll touch on uh, the human desire to live forever and whether or not immortality in this present world is even desirable, as well as uh, the evil that resides in all of us and how we might understand that. So let's go ahead and bring Mel in with clip number one. There's a difference between acceptance and agreement. Acceptance... And agreement are two different things. And an agreement in scripture, we've talked about this a little in the past. In Amos chapter 3, 3, this is one of my favorite verses. In the message version, it says, do two, two people walk hand in hand if they aren't going to the same place? And this is a rhetorical question because there's an implication that says, hey, if two people are going to walk hand in hand, they've agreed on two things. Where will they meet and where are they going? We will meet here at this time, and we will go here. So there's, there's an understanding that we will be in agreement because if we couldn't agree on where to meet, we're not gonna be able to walk hand in hand. And if we're not in agreement on where we're going, we can't walk hand in hand. Does that make sense? So agreement is powerful. Agreement is maybe one of the most misunderstood and um, undervalued principles in, our, in scripture. So Jesus, what we see is was never in agreement with some of the people he accepted, he would love them, but he wasn't necessarily in agreement with them. So when I think about the difference between acceptance and agreement, I think about boundaries. And I think what are the kind of boundaries that we should establish for people in our lives who do not share our aims? Maybe we desire people to agree with our ideas because we want the validation, or maybe there's some element of like misery loves company there. Like if somebody has a worldview or a a particular set of ideas or an aim that is causing them a significant amount of pain, they want other people to kind of walk down that with them. I know that like when I think about, okay, why don't I go to a bar on the weekends anymore? Um, you know, after becoming a Christian and especially after pursuing pastoral ministry, 
I feel like I could go into a bar and be okay. Like I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't, uh, fall into sin because of that you know it would be have to be like a willful choice and i'd have some degree of free will in that situation still but i don't do it because my relationship with people who find places like that like sacred still or, or places where they they've made it part of their habit or their routine my relationship with them can only go to a certain extent it has to be limited because we don't share the same aims and so i'm curious about like even if there's different ways of doing a good thing, is it wise for us to try to pursue agreement with people or to just leave it at acceptance and then find people who naturally agree with us and kind of build community around them? Well, so I think it depends on the situation. I think in regard to what we're talking about, um, the reason that we seek agreement is Partially, yes, because we want validation. When other people agree with our point of view, we feel validated in that point of view. Uh, the other reason, and this is the one that I think is really has bearing on what we're talking about, because when you start to talk about the gospel, this is where things really, like, this is where things, the rubber meets the road, so to speak. This is the crux of the issue. One of the reasons that I believe that we seek agreement as people is because whether we admit it or not, we know intrinsically that truth is um, objective, right? That there is an objective truth. Mm-hmm. And so we seek agreement because we we want if we if I believe, right? that Jesus is the Son of God, that salvation is only through Him. That they, And I believe that those truths are foundational because they're rooted in who God is, right? Then I want other people to agree with me, not because I want to be validated in my position, but because I believe that agreement with that position is, well, it, it's life or death, mm-hmm. Right? It's literally heaven or hell. And so that's why we seek agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because it, if you, even if you remove it from the, the, you know, the religious context, if, if indeed there is written in our hearts, hardwired into our DNA, the understanding that there is a foundational objective truth, there is, you know, that there definitely certainly is a right and there certainly is a wrong. And I think that for all of us, there is that understanding deep down. Mm. And I think that's why we seek agreement. Now, the, the error that we fall into or the trap that we fall into then, though, is that we make that tantamount to acceptance. We mm-hmm. make those things equal and they're not equal. Um and I'll, I'll give you an example of, of why I would say that. And, and, of course, Pastor Mel talked about that in the sermon as well, but just maybe this is another way of thinking about it. Like, if someone wrongs you, you don't have to agree that it's okay, mm-hmm. right? Like, there may be someone who, who offended you, and what they want from you is for you to say it's okay, mm. right? But that would be agreement, but that's not necessary for forgiveness. Right. But acceptance is. 
you accept that things aren't right between you and the person. And if you accept that you're not on the same page, you have a better basis. So so there's an acceptance there. I understand, I see and understand that we are not on the same page here. We're not in agreement here. Yeah. But I can still extend forgiveness to you. Mm-hmm. I can still accept you, right? And, and so those they're fundamentally different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when we withhold love or we withhold forgiveness or we withhold grace from people based on a the fact that we do not agree, then we lose the gospel. Yeah, I really like that idea of acceptance being a prerequisite for forgiveness and that that doesn't mean you have to agree with what the person did. And I think this kind of chases back to what we talked about last week. It might have been last week or the week before about the separation of ideas from people or the separation of actions from people. Yeah. And understanding that you can accept a person without without agreeing with uh, you know the, the, the thing that the person did. And I think maybe one of the reasons why we pursue agreement in these terms um, could be because like we know, like you were talking about how people understand that the truth is objective and the closer you can get, I think there's this kind of game happening in, in, in the postmodern environment where we know that we know deep down that truth is object is objective, but we have these subjective truths that we want to build communities around and the larger we build that community, the closer we can get to essentially defining reality or, or taking what is subjective and calling it objective. And I think that like, you know, one of the ways that we maintain our sanity is, is in reference to other people. So, so for instance, I'm sitting across from you right now. I know that if I say something just exquisitely stupid, um, you know, the, the, the facial expressions you'll give me in, in response to that will be like a feedback. It would be like, oh, I said something really dumb. Yeah. I should revise my thought. But if I surround myself with people who agree with my pathology, well, then I've, I've created a whole new reality, essentially, a whole new world. There's nowhere for me to look to understand that my view of the world is wrong. Yeah. And so maybe that's kind of like the impetus beh- behind people, um, you know, who have a certain way of life that they are maybe concerned might be wrong. They surround themselves with like a gang of people who live that life also so that they don't have to face with that fact that that particular thing is wrong. Okay. So, um, the next thing pastor Mel talks about is the desire to live forever or the desire for immortality and how this might be like a, a human desire, something that we've all sort of thought about. And then there's a question sort of at the end of it about whether or not this is, in consideration of eternity in heaven, whether or not immortality here is even desirable. So let's listen to that. There is this trope in, um, in fantasy literature about living forever. And one of the things Tolkien talks about is the fact that even though in Lord of the Rings, uh, the elves were, were immortal, they would live forever. Um, they wouldn't die a natural death. They were immortal, but they lived with this kind of morose attitude throughout their life because their life was meaningless because there was no end. Now think about this for a moment. If you are a Christian and you really believe heaven is real, that this earth is not our home, think about this for a minute. There's this idea that if we are immortal, if we could live forever on this earth, this earth essentially becomes hell because this earth is not what we were made for. Can you imagine living forever in this world, never experiencing heaven, being immortal. So I'm becoming more and more convinced that 
it's not even possible to get an accurate reading of reality unless you first have an accurate understanding of and faith in eternity. Yeah. Because like, man, something so eminently desirable as not dying gets flipped on its head when you think of it in light of eternity. Yeah. Like, because like Mel ends that clip, he's like, can you imagine immortality in this place when juxtaposed to heaven? It's like, no, I don't want that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I don't know who first said it, so I don't know who to give credit to, but I've heard it said, you know, that for, for the believer that this earth, right, that earth is all the hell we will ever experience. For the non-believer, for the unbeliever, earth is all the heaven they will ever know. Yeah, Wow. And man, like even that quote right there kind of highlights this idea. So I think that one of the reasons behind like the humanistic effort at utopianism or just building the perfect world is this presupposition that this is all we have to work with. Yeah. And if we can't do it here, we just can't do it. And I think that like, because we all understand archetypes and we understand like the highest good, even people who are not believers, like they know what the they know what the worst possible misery for everyone is. And so they can just reverse that a lot of times and kind of get at some idea of what would be better. And I think that there's an effort to pursue that and create that in the here and now. And like, here's the thing. I don't know if I disagree with that entirely because I don't want to stop making the world better. No. But I feel like perfect is the enemy of good often in this kind of pursuit of, of recrafting society. So maybe the question then is how could we go about improving things in our world while also maintaining an understanding that this is not all there is having that understanding that this is this is not all there is allows for some leniency and well one of the things that it allows for is accounting for the fallen nature of humanity so for instance like take our own government for example uh the best kind of government, as far as I'm concerned, is one that accounts for human toxicity, human <laughs> dysfunction. And it has like vents for it, like vents to release the pressure. Because if we go into it assuming, okay, we don't have toxicity, we can perfect human nature, then we're going to create a vehicle which requires a perfect human to operate. We don't want to take the wind out from the sails of the people who are trying to make the world better. I think of people like Elon Musk, you know, people like that. They're more humanist than anything and they're very driven to make the world better through technology or innovation what are some caveats that you would give to them or, or some ways that uh, maybe even inside the church with benevolence and things like outreach how would you manage the expectations well you know i'd say work like an armenian and sleep like a calvinist yeah right <laughs> so uh and what i mean by that is look god is in the business of renewing all things and he has employed us in that work. We are invited into the work that God is doing in the earth, the restoration of souls, but also the restoration of all creation. God is about the renewal of all things. And, and he calls us into that work. And so we should be engaged in that work. Because here's the thing, there's not a plan B. Like if you look at the scriptures, God's plan for building his kingdom is us. That's it. Now, if, if, you know, if I were God and had infinite wisdom and knowledge, I don't know that I would have done it that way, right? Uh, that's why I'm not God, though, right? So the point is this, like, we can look at that and go, man, that, you know, I don't know, I don't know if that's going to work, right? But, 
but God in his wisdom, in his knowledge, in his, you know, being, that's, that's the path that he chose. Like, I I can't explain that. I can't Mm -hmm. tell you, you know, but, but I know that it is. And so if, if there's not a plan B and God has given us the responsibility of building his kingdom, of spreading the gospel and the fruition of his kingdom is that there would be Shalom, right? That there would be mm-hmm. God's co- the completion of His work in perfection in the earth. Then we should be about that. Mm-hmm. We, if we know that God is a healer who cares about people who are sick and broken, then we should be about healing the sick and broken in whatever way that may look, right? So whether that's praying for the sick and God miraculously healing them, or coming alongside them with medical aid of, you know, whatever, whatever that may look like, right? I worked in a, a hospital, it was a Catholic hospital that I worked at uh, when I was in college. And the, mo- the like mission statement of the hospital was continuing the healing work of Jesus, mm. right? And so if we look at things in that way, in, with a holistic view, mm-hmm. you know, so, so then, you know, caring for this planet then becomes an extension of... Right our 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 gospel mindset it's not an either or it's a both and Mm -hmm. and so if god is about the renewal of all things then we as his people should be about the renewal of all things as well yeah now the second part of that is then though we don't have to feel overwhelmed Mm -hmm. or discouraged in that work because we know and believe that god is in control of all things Mm -hmm. and that if god has promised that he is going to renew all things, that he will build his church, that he will establish his kingdom, then then we don't have to be overwhelmed in it. That doesn't right. mean we try any less or work any less. It just means that at night, man, I can lay my head down and I can sleep knowing that, Lord, I've done what I knew to do today. Mm-hmm. And whether it succeeded or failed, you will have your way. Yeah. Yeah. So like there's a lot of motivation in telling someone or believing yourself that, and here's the thing, this might not actually be true, but there's a lot of motivation behind it. The idea that, okay, if I don't step up and do what I need to do, I'm going to leave a void in reality in this space that we all inhabit. And into that void is going to rush in chaos and bad things. Mm -hmm. I don't want to lose that measure of responsibility because I think that adds meaning to the pursuit. So it's like, okay, it's really meaningful to think that way. But the problem with it is also that it's really meaningful to think that way because if you don't do it or if you fail, then the guilt and the shame and the discouragement is palpable. Yeah. And so I don't know how we balance it. I like that idea of work like an Arminian and sleep like a Calvinist. Like that's that's really cool. (laughs) Um, So maybe that's the way we do it. Is just kind of yeah. So 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 the pushback that I would give on that, or maybe I would say I think the a different way of looking at that is if I don't step into that void today, well, that doesn't necessarily mean that chaos will ensue. What I would say is that God's going to accomplish His work. God's going to accomplish His purpose, whether I step into that void or not. But what will not happen? is that God's purpose in me will not be fulfilled, right? So if God will see to, like, you know, God can lay it on someone else's heart to to go and 
start a nonprofit or work in a homeless shelter or travel to another country to to serve people there. God can can lay it on someone else's heart to do that. But his purpose in me will be, you know, because I'll be walking in disobedience. I won't be walking in submission. So I don't know that I should feel an overwhelming sense of, oh no, these people are going to suffer because I didn't step mm-hmm. into that void. Um, maybe in the short term, maybe, it, you know, I don't, man, yeah. it's, it's hard to say how that works together. But I do know that whether or not I step into that void or not has direct implications on whether or not God's is formed in me. Yeah. So I like what you're doing here. So what, what it sounds to me like is you're saying, okay, so instead of looking at it as if there's going to be a void in reality that is going to cause problems and, and you know, pe- chaos is going to rush in and it's going to be harmful for the, the people and the things out there. We think, okay, flip it over and say, if I don't step up and I don't do what I need to do, then I'm not going to be shaped into who God intends for me to be. Right. And I think, man, like that, then you can keep the responsibility on yourself while also understanding that the grand narrative is in God's hands. And so then you lose some of the pressure of like feeling like you need to be the Messiah yourself yeah. versus not losing the pressure of having the responsibility to become who God designed you to be. So yeah, I like I that think, balance. I think anytime the impetus becomes me, anytime I am cast in the role of the hero, there's a problem. Mm. So if I don't step into the void, all of these other people are going to suffer. Well, that's casting me in the role of the hero, mm-hmm. right? Rather than casting me in the role of faithful servant. Mm, yeah. Uh, because here's the here's the flip side of that. So we, we've talked about what it what happens if I don't step into that void. But let's talk about what happens if I do step into that void and I'm the hero. Mm. Right? If I do step into that void and let's say I'm wildly successful but I've cast myself as the hero. Well, then Christ isn't formed in me because I am walking in pride and self-sufficiency. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I end up being one of those people that goes, but Lord, I cast out demons in your name. And I did this in your name. And I did that in your name. And Jesus says, I didn't never, I never knew you. Yeah. Right. Or if I step into the void and I am an utter failure, right. Then... Then I fall into despair and self-loathing because I have felt that it is all on me and I have let everyone down. Yeah. If I step into whatever God is calling me to simply with the aim of being faithful, Mm -hmm. then succeed or fail, I can rest in knowing that I was faithful as a servant and that Christ is formed in me and that he will take care of the work in the other people around me as well as I just want to faithfully serve. Yeah, I love it. I love the idea of, okay, if I, instead of thinking of myself as the hero, if I aim at being the faithful servant, then I know that I'm doing everything I can to help renew everything around me, but I'm not doing it in an unhealthy way. And also if I fail and I mess up, I'm still succeeding in being a faithful servant, which is the aim at the end of the day. That's, that's really good. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about death. Um, I often feel like I'm being trite if I suggest to someone who just lost a loved one, well, well, they're, they're in heaven or, you know, there's, there's (laughs) eternity. Like there's something about that to me that feels like, A, it's not gonna do anything to alleviate their pain now, but at the same time, believing that that's true has to change the way that you feel about death. 
hundred percent for both for yourself and for the people around you. And so to just not talk about that in the face of death, I think is a mistake. How would you go say you're at a funeral or you're officiating a funeral and the people there are not clear on eternity. I mean, maybe they're Christians, but they just haven't really thought much about heaven for some reason, whatever it is. Um, how would you talk to them about it in a way that wouldn't come off like, oh, you know, you shouldn't be sad at all because your loved one's in heaven now. But at the same time, delivering the perspective transforming reality that heaven is real and that eternity is real yeah. and that life should be viewed in light of that. Yeah. Um, well, you know, Scripture says that we we don't mourn like those who have no hope, right? The mourning of a Christian should look and be different than people who mourn and do not have Christ. Because our hope is not in this life only. Our hope is in Christ and, and in life with Him. And so our mourning should look different. And we should comfort each other with eternity. That should be, you know, what we mourn is the loss that we feel in these moments, mm-hmm. the loss that we feel in temporal reality. We should, though, at that same time, rejoice for those and with those who have gone before us, right, mm-hmm. who are now in the presence of God. Man, I was at a, there was a funeral for a lady in our church recently, and her husband actually got up and, and preached the message in the funeral and, and talked about this very thing, that, and talked about the, the sense of loss that he felt because his, his wife of 50-something years was no longer here for him to talk with her and to hold her hand and to have dinner together and to interact in those ways, but that he was rejoicing because he knew that her suffering was over, he knew that she was with the Lord, and he knew that he would one day be reunited with yeah. her in the presence of God. So we absolutely need to have that eternal perspective uh, in when we face death, but also in the just in the way that we live life. Yeah. You know, if someone's been a Christian their whole life and they lose a loved one, it's painful. But they may never know what it's like to experience that loss without the hope of eternity. Yeah. And so the pain is, is sort of subjective in that way and is sort of relative in that way. It's got to be different whenever you have inter- eternity in mind. And we don't really know how much different I'm certain there's examples of people who have lost loved ones before they were Christians and they know what that felt like. Yeah. And then post conversion, maybe they lost a loved one again. And so they can see the difference, but keeping this in mind and understanding that the, the pain that you have averted or you've avoided by keeping it in mind, like that's significant stuff. Like that's going to change the way you walk through grief. That's going to change, you know, the possibility of you holding on to memories in an unhealthy way and just living in the past rather than looking forward and all of that stuff is going to be changed just by keeping that mindset. And Mm -hmm. it's not even just with regards to death. It's also with regards to like global problems and things which seem really severe and serious in the here and now. They just don't whenever you hold them in light of eternity. And so I guess the only caution I would say is not to kind of become, and I'm interested in what you think about this, not to become the kind of person who's so heavenly minded to be of no earthly good. And I hesitate to say that because we all want to be heavenly minded, 
but we also don't want that to rob us of our desire to do good in the here and now. And I guess it shouldn't if we have an accurate understanding of Jesus and of heaven and of all the rest. Yeah, it's so it's one of those things, going back to what I was saying about God's renewing, renewing all things, that has implications for the here and now. It, it's not, I mean, and even... When Jesus come, when Jesus came, he said, "The kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of God is here. Right? It has arrived." And so, in order for us to be about the Father's business, bringing the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, to bear on the world around us, that is not simply a proposition about making converts. It is about bringing the presence of god the reign of god the you know the rule of god to bear on every aspect of life so it it touches on justice it touches on like environment our environment and our care for the earth it touches on you know caring for orphans and widows it it, it goes it it touches every part of reality mm-hmm including and finding its most beautiful expression in the renewal of souls. Yeah, this is a super important point to keep in mind, I think, in order to guard yourself against cynicism. So, for instance, you might start by thinking that a utopia is possible, and then you learn that it's not accurately, properly, you learn that it's not. But then I think there's the danger of swinging to the other side and saying, okay, because the utopia is not possible in the here and now, therefore the kingdom of God is not possible in the here and now. And that's not true either. Right. And so it's like, it is the case that we can bring the kingdom of God to bear in reality in the here and now and most, most uh, beautifully with the transformation of souls. So that gives you some motivation to do the work also, because it's like, well, yeah, I know I'm not going to recreate heaven on my own in the here and now absent of God, but what I am able to do is manifest the presence of Christ to help the kingdom of God manifest in the here and now. And that's actually mm-hmm. going to make things a lot better than they would be otherwise. Yeah. And so like there is actual results in that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's as simple as asking ourselves, what does God care about? Right? So does God care about those who are hurting and sick, whether they're Christians or not? Yes. Right? Does does God care about whether or not this earth is a, a, a proper habitable place for people to live? Yeah, I believe he cares about that, right? Does God care about uh, those who are, you know, homeless and those who are hungry, those who are sick, those who are, yeah, those are things God cares about. And so we can't abdicate our responsibility on those areas, because like if, if those are things God cares about, those should be things that I care about as well. Mm-hmm. And they they then become avenues and opportunities for God, you know, for the glory and the love of God to be revealed and then for people to be transformed and changed by that as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... I like it because, um, I mean, everybody kind of understands this idea uh, in relationship to like their spouse or their kids, for example. So if you, if, if your spouse really enjoys doing something that you don't particularly enjoy, but just the, the joy that comes to them through doing that thing makes you want to do that thing because yeah. you love your spouse. And so the same way with God, you know, there, there might be like a particular part of ministry that you don't like doing. 
Um, but you know that God cares about that deeply. Yeah. And because you love God and because God loves you, you want to do that thing just to, just to please the Lord, essentially. Okay, so we're going to talk next about evil and how evil resides in all of us and how we might understand it. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, hey, um, you've heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery, but I say if you look lustfully on a woman, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. See, he's raising the standard. He says, hey, you've heard it said thou shalt not kill, but I say if you look at a man, if you look at someone with hatred in your heart, you've murdered him. So what Jesus is doing is he's raising the standard. We need to raise our standard and understand that there is evil that lurks in our hearts, that, that we have to constantly be vigilant about the nature of our own souls. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter seven, he said, he's talking about the nature of sin and, and how our flesh is sinful. And he said, I don't do what I wanna do. And I do what I don't wanna do. I don't understand myself. I'm sure some of you can relate to that. I know I can. And what he's talking about is this war within us of, of sin, our flesh with the spirit of God. And he says, I, I battle and I struggle. And we all relate to that. Why? Because our flesh is evil. It wants selfish things. And we have to understand if that is in me, it's going to be in our church too. So when I listen to this clip, the, the phrase that comes into my mind, um, I, I think Hannah Arendt coined this phrase, the banality of evil. And kind of the idea is that good people are capable of doing evil things, like relatively good people, what you'd think of as good people. Yeah. So we think of evil, we think of like the super villain, you know, this person <laughs> who's only evil all the time, that's the person who's gonna commit evil acts. But the banality of evil would suggest that like, okay, so you could have someone, um, an excellent example of this is what are called the Hawker albums. And they are pictures, photographs of Nazi SS soldiers at this uh, kind of resort thing that was right outside of Auschwitz. And they were just like holding their babies and playing with their dogs and yeah, eating ice cream yeah, yeah. and doing all these things during their time off. And then they would go to work and do all the things that they did in Auschwitz. Yeah. And what it showed people when this album came out years after the war, what it showed people was that no, these aren't like people who are just wicked all the time and just completely repulsive. And they're just people doing bad things. And I think that we have a misunderstanding of evil. I know the culture misunderstands evil if they even believe in it at all. I think we're getting to a place where we, where we stop believing in it, where we think that any kind of wickedness at all is a consequence of like infirmity, you know, a yeah. mental illness or whatever it is. Yeah. But also inside the church, I think it's a common misconception that when a person comes to Christ, they are no longer evil. What I would say, and I'm happy to be corrected on this, but I would say when a person converts and they come to Jesus, they are now evil plus the spirit of God, which is a huge difference, but the evil is still resident in them. Like it's still in them. I don't, I don't know that I would say we're, we're evil plus the spirit of God. I think scripture talks about us being new creatures in Christ Jesus. I do think that we are still subject to the appetites of the flesh uh, we are still subject to the brokenness in our world, to the effects of sin, you know. Uh, and so, but fundamentally, we are changed. Uh, I was talking last night with a group about this. And so I think before you come to Christ, before you or I come to Christ, our deepest desire, right? Our, the desire that we are at the core of our being, our deepest desire is to please self, when we are regenerated, when we are transformed by the power of, of the Holy Spirit, 
our deepest desire is transformed. My mm-hmm. deepest desire now is no longer to please Todd. My deepest desire now is to please the Lord, to to please God, to please Christ. You know, and so, so I am fundamentally a different person, but I am still living in the same world, mm-hmm. right? Which so so it's not that I no longer have a desire or proclivity or the ability to do evil, but I am no longer bound to do that because my deepest desire is changed. Mm. So does this look like a perspective shift on the temptations of the flesh? So for instance, if your deepest desire is to please God and then you observe yourself not doing that, is this mostly about like, so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to explain for people what this might feel like to them. If their deepest desire is to please God and then they watch themselves giving in to the temptations of the flesh, is the valuable piece there understanding what the temptations of the flesh actually are in that moment and understanding like, okay, I'm doing something I don't want to do. Whereas before they were doing something they both shouldn't do and they wanted to do it. Yeah. And so, yeah, and that's what I would say, like, when we start talking about this, what we need to recognize is that even my recognition that my action was wrong or grievous to God, right, is a work of the Holy Spirit. Mm. That when I lack conviction about something, that... I should really be more concerned about that than mm-hmm. I am when I when I transgress and I go, oh, I messed up. Yeah, you know, because uh, I mean, think about look, Michael. Before you came to Christ, there were things that you were doing that you didn't even think twice about. Right, hundred percent. Yeah, but after you came to Christ, even without prompting from anyone else, there was this a knowing in you, like I need to stop doing that. Yeah, yeah. That is a fundamentally different approach to life and it's something that christ accomplished in you yeah it wasn't you know and so so we have to recognize that and go man that's how i know i'm a completely different person and god has done something radical in me because Mm -hmm. there are things i didn't even think twice about before things that i just this this is the way that i live that all of a sudden and again without prompting from anyone else yeah. just the holy spirit going that's not how you ought to live yeah that's the crucial piece too like this idea of not having prompting from say your externalities or even yourself so for instance uh, this really points to the to the spiritual reality of what's happening in a person and like if you're you know say you're apologetically inclined or you're not so sure you want kind of evidence of God, like this is, this is, is close. I think as you could probably get is in this kind of life change idea because physiologically you are 100% the same person that you were mm-hmm. before your, your conversion. And you might even have the same friends after, like after that particular moment. Now you're going to end up surrounding yourself with godly community years down the road. And that's going to build up ideally, but like from one day to the next, at least that's how it was for me. Like it wasn't like a progressive sort of thing. I know it's kind of different for people have different testimonies with regards to this, but for me it was, okay, I'm exactly, at least in terms of my DNA and my, like I said, my physiology, I'm exactly the same person that I was last week. And I have all the same things around me, but the way I think about all these things has, has shifted in a way that's really that can't, 
be un. It feels to me like it can't be unshifted. Like yeah. once you see something, it's hard to unsee it. Yeah. Sort of thing. Yeah. And that points to a spiritual reality. That points to something that has happened on a level that is unbound to the physical. That is unbound to the here and now in a way it, it influences the here and now it comes in and it touches mm-hmm. the reality that we inhabit yeah but it doesn't live there as its source of origin let's say yeah. and that's a man that is an amazing thing if you can be awake enough and pay enough attention to your conversion process to watch that happen that's that feels like knowing god yeah in, in a way that is really hard to explain to somebody like in words if that makes sense yeah it does and you know and what what pastor mel was really getting at in the sermon is you know he talked about how that uh in the gospel according to harry potter that morality was sufficient for righteousness basically that they were equated uh that morality equals righteousness if i if i or is sufficient for redemption so if i just choose to do the right thing then then redemption is possible for me um but when we uh, when we have this understanding about the that that change in our core desire our deepest desire well then then that's just that's not something you just mature into right? Um, that's something that when we, when we understand redemption and we understand that what, what's, you know, that Jesus alone is sufficient for redemption, then, it, then we begin to understand why that's so important that we see what that core and deepest desire is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, because if morality were enough for redemption, then, you know, then every person it, you know, who had committed a crime would be able then to just go, oh, well, you know, I, I know I, I know I, you know, stole this thing or beat this person or, you know, but, but I also gave some money to, uh, to this homeless shelter over here or to this, you know, this charity or, you know, so that, that ought to balance out the scales. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the problem is that's not how that's not how it works, and we we understand that we know that you know we can't just balance out the scales in that way. Mm-hmm. I can't I can't go and murder someone tomorrow and then go oh but you know if I had the funds to do this right oh but I built the, a new children's wing on the hospital so mm-hmm. it's all good. Um, I, I, we we attempt those kinds of things. I mean, we've seen it in like you know, you know, you see it in the mobster movies or whatever. Like you know, when they try to paint the portrait of how oh well, he's not such a bad guy. I know he I know he has people killed or whatever, or maybe he kills people, but he also does all this good charity work. Mm-hmm. Well, we when we look at that, we we go well, yeah, but this doesn't erase. You know, your good deeds don't erase your right, bad right. deeds. We understand that the scale doesn't work that way, but we want it to work that yeah. way. Yeah, because it puts us in control because then we can essentially, it, it's almost like a form of selling indulgences you Yeah, know, because you can just pay for what you're about to do with other good deeds and make sure that your balance stays positive, essentially. And like, yeah, it really, it, it puts us in the driver's seat. And yeah, you know, one of the things that I think, having, you know, your relationship with Christ and your deepest desire to please him, 
one of the things it also does is it protects you against what is called like the Overton window. So this idea of the Overton window is like a window of acceptability that's kind of based on predicated on the culture. So if the culture says such and such is acceptable this week, um, and then six months from now, that window of acceptability has moved and things that weren't acceptable today become acceptable six months from now, that's where the Overton window has shifted. Yeah. And Christians shouldn't, at least they shouldn't be affected by that. And um, that's huge because the worst things that humans tend to do, I think they tend to do while thinking that they're righteous while doing it. Like they yeah, actually yeah, yeah. They actually lose the capacity to see that the thing is bad because they are subject to the Overton window. They're subject to what's mm-hmm. culturally acceptable in any given moment. And you know, you see people today who would advocate that other people, their 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 kinsmen essentially are denied healthcare depending on their vaccination status. Yeah. And that it used to be that would be a very rare and uh I would say rightfully marginalized viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not now in so many instances. Yeah. And that's a dangerous game to be playing. And I think that that's one of the, that's part of the wisdom behind the admonition to keep your desire alongside what God desires and to have that deepest desire to be in him because it protects you from the temporal in a sense. Like it, yeah. it's building your house on a firm foundation essentially. Yeah. And so, and that's why it's so important for us to, have an approach to God's word that, you know, that holds scripture in high regard. And that says, when my life is not in alignment with the, the, with the scriptures, with the word of God, it is not the word of God that is in error. It is mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Right. And that we seek to align ourselves with the truths of God's word rather than the other way around, rather than trying to adapt the truth of the of the word to you know my understanding of truth or the way in which I want to live or and if we do that then yeah then that kind of overton window you know as as culture shifts and as what is deemed right in culture shifts we don't shift because mm-hmm. going back to what we we're talking about earlier we are looking at truth as an objective standard mm-hmm. yeah as revealed in who God is and his word to us. Yeah. So before we sign off, I want to um, discuss just one more thing. This kind of uh, recalls back to something we were talking about earlier, but this is, I just want to get this out and we'll see whether there's anything to talk about on it. But one of the potential snares, I think, if you're a non-Christian listening to this and you become a Christian, one of the uh, things you might not see coming that might hit you and you're like, oh, what's that, uh, is this. If you've encountered things in your pre-Christian life, difficulties, tragedies, losses, grief, betrayals, all that stuff, the pain that you felt before you were a Christian is not going to be the same as the pain that you feel after you're a Christian. And it's so markedly different that you can start to feel guilty that you don't feel enough pain about certain things. And I don't know what that means exactly, but I know that man, I've gone through some stuff after being a Christian that the pain is just, it's not even in the same universe as the pain that I felt when my worldview was all jacked up. And I think sometimes there's a temptation with Christians to, to feel like they're not grieving enough or like that their lack of pain is a reflection on how much they loved someone. Yeah. And I think that that's a lie. And I think it's mostly a, a 
it's a nefarious temptation, really. It's like, well, I need to, I really need to be drinking my sorrows away or else I didn't feel, or I wasn't in, in love with this person enough, or I wasn't, I didn't feel a certain way, you know, like, or I, there's something wrong with me. I'm becoming callous even, yeah. or I'm becoming desensitized or numb, but it just is the case that yeah. when your worldview is situated properly, things are less painful. They just are. And you can see in the culture, people who are, uh, you know, at least biblically, awry in terms of their worldview yeah. things hurt them more they're like emotional hemophiliacs to some degree like the smallest thing causes all kinds of of bleeding and pain and i don't know where we go with that or if there's much to discuss there but i just i think it's important that people know when they feel negative things after they're christian and it's just not as deep and not as palpable that might not be a bad thing. It's not necessarily that there's something wrong with them or that they've become numb. It's just that their worldview is different. And because of that, things don't hurt as much. Yeah. Uh, I think it's the difference between grief and despair. Hmm. So grief is something that all of us experience. It is the result of suffering. Mm-hmm. Whether it's grieving the loss of a loved one, whether it's grieving the loss of a relationship, whether it's grieving uh the the loss of our health and well-being if we're if we're going through suffering with illness grief is associated with suffering despair on the other hand is a loss of hope Mm, yeah for those of us who are in christ there is always hope goes back to what i was saying before about um you know that we don't have hope in this life only and paul talks about that in um in 1 Thessalonians 4, right, verse 13, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep. He's talking about people who've mm-hmm. died in Christ, right? So that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Yeah, yeah. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so, and then he goes on from that. But I think that's the difference. Mm-hmm. Christians still grieve because we still suffer, but we do not lose hope because hope is alive in the person of Jesus. And yeah. for all of us who are in Christ, we have hope. Yeah, that's a, that's a great place to wrap this up. Thank you, Todd. Thank you. And thanks for everyone for tuning in, and uh, we will see you guys in the next episode. Bye, everyone. So that conversation ended on a heavy yet hopeful note. Next week, we will discuss the fourth part of the gospel according to. As always, if you find this content valuable, please rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to it. Don't forget to subscribe at summitpodcast.church forward slash subscribe. This is your home base for all things Summit Audio. Whether you're in Blairsville, Indiana, or anywhere else in the Summit community, I hope you know we all love you, we appreciate you, and we will see you in the next episode.